0: Hi there, welcome along to the High Performance Podcast. We have had over the past 12 months so many people just telling us that they they want more. They want more from this podcast. So this is why things look slightly different for this new series. Not just on a Monday, every Monday, but also on Wednesdays you could expect episodes to suddenly appear from the High Performance Podcast just to help you out if you need a little bit of inspiration. Don't forget you can also find us on Instagram at High Performance or on YouTube as well. But let's get to it. It's time for the latest.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Hello there, I'm Jay Comfrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and artists on the planet – aims to unlock the very secrets to their high performance life so you can follow in their footsteps. With me as ever, lecturer, author, professor Damien Hughes, and Damien from a rural tea plantation in India to the most cutting edge sporting series on the planet. I think today's going to be quite a story.
2: I think it's going to be fascinating. I think that this is somebody that having read about him talks about um, one of his great skills is being an observer and a watcher, and I'm interested in going from different worlds. What is it he watches for?
0: Interesting, let's find out. Um, And let's delve into the tricks, the behaviours, the mindsets and the belief that is required to work in industries as diverse as T, IT, wind turbines, all the way to being the CEO and team principal of the Mahindra Formula E team. Now, how has our guest married personal success with inspiring a team? Competing on a global sporting stage, but at the same time, keeping human emotion at the heart of his journey. And if you watch coverage of Formula E, you will know that this man is very emotional in the back of the garage during every race. Welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Dilbag Gill. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, guys, for having me here. Let's start with the, the question we ask all our guests
3: at the very beginning What is high performance? For me, I would look at high performance as consistency, consistency of conviction consistency of belief, consistency of influence, consistency of courage, consistency of boldness. So I would say like, it's all like, if you can be sort of really strong on what you're trying to do and do it on a daily basis, that for me, that's high performance. So where did that mindset come
0: from then for you to to not just look for excellence, but to do it consistently?
3: So I I go back to one of my uh, earlier jobs and I still remember like, my boss telling me, do it right the first time. And I think that sort of stuck with my, all the time. Like, but see, when I, when I grew up in India, labor was cheap. So therefore, rework was cheap. So a lot of time, we never we just did a patch job and said, okay, yeah, I mean, if this job needs to be redone, we'll redo it. But this boss man said, do it right the first time around. And for me, I think that sort of struck a chord. Let's try and do stuff. Let's take pride and pleasure in what we do and do it right. And what was the job that you were doing when you got that advice? I was head of marketing of a telecom company at that point in time. And I don't know what the context was. It wasn't directly related to my job. He was just giving a, a blanket statement on something. But that struck a chord. And I think yeah, that's what, like 22 years ago or something like that. So it's, Been pretty early in my career when I heard that and it sort of stuck with me.
0: And you were born into a family where you grew up on a tea plantation, so your dad was already a businessman. I know that you went to boarding school at only five years old and I I did a little bit of research into that and I saw that the motto for the school was never give in. So I wonder whether you were getting these kinds of messages about trying to achieve a high-performance life from really quite a
3: young age, were you? To be honest, uh, no. I think for me, the transformation in my life was when I started working. I think I was really laid back, took life really easily uh, while growing up. I was quite lucky because I grew up, I would say, I won't say in a privileged life, but in a reasonably comfortable life. Okay, so we did have everything what we needed. At the same time, we did not have a lot of stuff which was needed also. Like I grew up on this real rural area, so we did not have television, we did not have telephones. We had to interact with humans. Because that was the only form of thing. The maximum was a radio. And the newspaper, which used to come up by the first bus around 11 o'clock in the morning, the bus came up. So a lot of my work was just like walking around the plantation, working uh, with the people out there. And that industry is very labor intense because tea is very rural, very labor intense. And there was, I remember, a strike, uh, labor strike at one point in time, there was some dispute. And my dad said we need to get produce from the field to the factory. Someone needs to drive the truck. I volunteered at 13. And I said, that's <laughs> the best job I could get in my vacation was driving a truck with with produce. But then that also gave me a sense of responsibility. Because I needed to get stuff from A to B right while I was doing something reasonably illegal. Okay, because I was didn't have a driving license and I not should not be driving a truck, but it was private roads, so we could get away with it. And I think right now. It's been 35 years, so I don't think I can get into trouble yeah, with that. No, I think you're okay. Yeah, yeah. I think you're okay. So that's where I think responsibility sort of came. My dad just sort of trusted me. He said, You're going to do this. When you say
0: that the sort of the moment came from being in work, what was it that that gave you? What was the emotion you got from finally being at work that impacted you more than perhaps schoolwork? Because we hear this from a lot of our guests that school didn't really resonate with them, they didn't really tune into it. It was the world of work that opened their eyes to what can be achieved.
3: See, while I was a student, I was an average student. I could get by. Like, I knew I could do the minimum to get by. And I always worked to the minimum. When I started work, I realized, man, now it is a world where you have to prove you're not going to be coasting any longer. You just, it's not automatic. Okay, that this year in seventh grade, you're going next year to eighth grade, and then the year after that to ninth. If you want to move up, you need to start showing some leadership, taking some risk, uh, doing something which is different. And I think that's where... I really started pushing myself. And also at that point in time, I realized that I didn't take too much out of my education. So I said, okay, maybe I'll be better as a general person, like learning different disciplines rather than just focusing on trying to be an engineer, which I'd studied because I was a hopeless engineer. So one of the key um, attributes that I've read that you described a lot of your
2: success has been on, has been one doing it right first time, but another one is questioning everything. So when did that curiosity, then start to ignite, to start challenging and questioning and trying to understand?
3: I would say this was somewhere when I was like 18, 19 years old. I went out to university and this is the first time I've been to a city because I grew up in this uh, rural area, as I said. Uh, My dad sort of said, okay, this is the money you're going to have for the first year of college. And this is the first time I had access to a bank account because they opened a bank account at university, deposited money. And said, okay, how much do you estimate? So, we didn't estimate. I think that was like X amount of rupees per month. So, he said, okay, for the next six months, this is what you need. There's the money in the bank. Off I go. And he went home. And this was a city. And this is the city of Bangalore, which is known for its pubs in Bangalore. Okay, like with the beer, etc. So, second day in university, we went out to have a drink. The third day, we went out. And then I realized, I think in a month and a half, that I've spent the six months of money already. (laughs) I cannot call up home because we don't have telephones at home. So, I have to write a letter. And at that point in time, I can't be eating uh, food, et cetera, because I didn't have any, any money. So that's when I decided that, okay, I need to sort of survive. My dad uh, replied to me, says, too bad. You estimated for six months, figure it, out, figure it out yourself. So what I decided then was the only way for me to survive is to start repairing motorcycles in, in the hostel of the college. So it became, I started repairing motorcycles and I started making money there. And that's how I got into motorsport to a certain extent. I said, okay, I, I was pretty good at working with my hands. So in year one, I started repairing motorcycles and by year two, I hired two people who lived off campus but used to come into the campus during the day to strip the bikes down. So by the evening when I finished class, I could come and work on it. So they knew how to wash the bike service. it. So, So then thereafter what happened was every evening, like that became sort of a social point, the garage, that corner where we used to repair motorcycles and people used to either pay me with cash, beer or cigarettes. So it was like whatever they had, they like disappeared. You weren't fussy. You'd no, take it. You'd just take it. And then I started realizing, okay, we started doing a little bit of racing on a motorcycle. I started doing that. And I suddenly realized that the college campus like started supporting me. They said, okay, this guy is going on trying to do racing, et cetera. So we didn't have much money. So someone, and I knew every motorcycle in our college, we had like 2,000 on motorcycles there. This guy had the best tires, that guy had the best suspension. So we used to borrow parts from everyone. And they used to all give it, okay, yeah, you use it and then bring it back. And petrol also, steal petrol from everyone, like from the fill up your tank and go out. And I think that's when it sort of came back that if you take something on, there are people who are going to support you. And I still remember when I finished college, I was earning a princely sum of money. Like I did save a lot of money when I finished college. I went to dad and said, here, you take your money back. I've giving you my money with interest. What was his reaction to that? He took it and he said, yeah, son, let's have a drink tonight. And he bought it. So it was like, he was pretty clear. He was actually proud of it, I think. In the end of the day, he says, okay, he wasn't proud of of my score because I really didn't uh, focus too much on my education part of it. But he was happy that, okay, I survived. I I sort of managed on my own. I didn't bother him too much on stuff. And I still remember, I think it took me like five years of real working to reach Sort of the money I was making when I was a student. Wow. So, like, so when I started work, it wasn't as much money. So I, I started my first job with cash in pocket. So it was really nice. But you had to be someone that was willing to forge your own path. Because I think
0: growing up in India, Indian families are very, very keen on an education and a strong education and going into your chosen field. Whereas it almost feels to me like you'd made that decision at college that, of course, you were going to be at college and you were get the grades, but the key for you is the work out outside of that. So at this point, do you feel that like
3: you'd become an entrepreneur? I think, yes, I did become an entrepreneur because I knew I'd done my engineering course, but I'm not gonna be a very good engineer. So I need to survive. And talking about education, as you rightly say, in India, we take it really seriously. So I have two siblings, an elder sister and a younger brother. So my sister was a doctor. I'm an engineer and my brother's a lawyer. So we sort of did the three tick uh, yeah. boxes for my parents. They were happy. What you've done subsequently
2: is, looking at your career is, although you applied convention in many ways to that traditional Indian um, holy trinity of law, medical and engineering, your career since has been quite unconventional when we look at it, that you've gone across quite a wide variety from selling tea on the internet to working with wind turbines, IT, and now into motorsport. How do you establish credibility in each of those worlds when you first enter them?
3: Oh, that's a nice question. I really don't know if I ever looked at credibility and think because, okay, I took an opportunity, I found it exciting and I said, let's go do our best. And as you said, like I've always changed industry and function. I went from marketing to manufacturing and stuff like that. I think I'm reasonably comfortable knowing I don't know what I don't know. That in itself is, is a very important mindset because I think a lot of people are not brave enough
0: to admit there are things they don't know, are they? People like to pretend they know everything. They think it, they think it makes them seem stronger or more powerful.
3: I don't know about that because for myself, I'm absolutely sure. Yeah. I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room and I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. But at the same time, I would love to work with the like-minded people to get stuff done. So it's for us, whenever I take up something, I've never looked at it as a job. And maybe that's where this thing comes in. I look at it as a mission. Okay, this is something which I need to do. We have to do. So a lot of stuff which I've done is like jumping into new bits. And some of it was like totally new for even our country. And that's what challenged me, I think. We were like, wind turbines just came to India. Let me be one of the first employees for a wind turbine company. I think this is going to be something exciting. I never looked at it from a sustainability perspective, nothing. It was just, it's a new industry. No one knows anything. It's sort of a flat playing field for all of us. Let's go do it. Another thing which has struck me is that find the purpose, the means will follow. Like once, you know we're going to yeah. Things start falling in place because I think it's all your focus goes around that. So what would you say
2: your purpose was? Because you spoke about this idea of having a powerful drive and a mission. What's
3: yours? I think the, the purpose changes at times. Uh, so there's not been like one single purpose uh, like with each thing. But I think of recent, which sort of drives me a lot, is I sort of take it to a small extent that I'm carrying India. I want to carry India. Like I don't want to embarrass India at different stuff. So even when you did the World Cup, which was, I think, a much more challenging sort of job than what we're doing right now at Formula E. I remember growing up watching athletes and we never ever believed that we'll ever get out of where we are. And I've always been a fan of human talent.
0: So when you're building teams and you've built teams across all kinds of different industries, you've now created a a Formula E team who've won races in every single season. They've competed in Formula E right from the very beginning of the sport. What do you look for? in people what is the talent that you want in the teams that are around you what do you think
3: are the the key attributes I think first is trying to find out break down what the problem you're trying to solve Mm. okay and what's the person's commitment to the problem for me I think commitment to something is really important so I'm looking for people to a certain extent who are like me nine to five doesn't exist in our diary like we are like if you have to be, we are going to be called together to do something on a Saturday morning and work for six straight days. Is this person going to be? I look at people. Like okay, saying if I'm going for a war, who do I want to be on my side on the on the battle? Like who can I depend on? I love that. That's
2: something that I've read um, is a big message that Sir Alex Ferguson used to use at Manchester United. That he used to encourage his players to look on either side of them in the dressing room and appreciate what they brought to the battle with them and why they were glad that they were alongside them. I really like that as a, a as a question to ask.
0: Be, There'll be lots of people listening to this who are running teams, running businesses, and they would love to have people around them who would go to war with them. How do you get the right people in the room, though? What are the questions you ask or the processes that you go through
3: to make sure the people in your team will go to war? I'm not sure if it comes out through a question, at least. I think now with a little bit of experience, is instinct. Yeah, You just look at a person, you start talking. And to be honest, you, sometimes if you do an interview, you sort of make your decision the first 10-15 seconds after that it's I think you're just trying to validate your own decision which you've made sure but that intrigues me because you're an engineer by training so you're somebody that uses
2: logic and precision so I so it intrigues me that you talk about intuition
3: as much as as much as logic in your decisions but isn't intuition a part of logic like uh, with logic with experience becomes intuition because like after some time you experience the same thing again and again it's instinct out that you know, okay, I'm going to protect myself from this situation. Because sure, but I think what Jake's trying to ask is, what is it that somebody listening to this
2: can tap in and learn from your, from your logic that they can use to accelerate their own decision-making?
3: I think from my side, like, the first sort of, where we sort of break the ice on the first question is, ask the person to t- talk about his personal. What does he sort of believe, and nothing to do with the job, nothing to do with that, like, Let's take a uh, break the ice question. I think that's where you start hearing and learning, okay, what sort of drives, tries to drive this this individual? Because yes, for a job on the technical side, a person can read the books and he can come in and he can give you all the brilliant answers. And I think this also goes back to a little bit to myself because I was never a good student. So I was never too sure that if I go for an interview, I'll be able to answer the technical stuff. So maybe I tried talking about stuff which is not technical and go because I was not very comfortable. And maybe that's something which I look for and the other individual is okay, is this person like who they're like I said, go for war, have a beer in the evening with this person. Like what's the first question you'd ask me then? If I if I was applying to come and join your team? First question last you is that if you were in my position, what would you do? So that gives me an idea if the guy's thought about the company. Does he feel there's a future of this organization? Does he have a vision where he it should be heading to? So I basically say, okay, you're me, what would you do? And do you want the answer to be in line with what you would do? Or do you want them to challenge your thinking? I would like them to challenge my thinking. Because end of the day, as you've seen in my career, I've taken up new roles. I don't know that industry, I don't know the job. So I'm looking for people who know a bit more to take this forward. And Many times I'm riding the wave of the people who have done the hard work below me, or with me. So I think at some point in time, I don't know if I've really been lucky all my life, that I've had teams who have sort of carried me. And many times I do question myself, am I a person who should have been the leader.
0: See, I'm very interested that you talk about questioning whether you are really a leader or whether you're just lucky. And we talk a lot on this podcast about evidence. People constantly look for evidence. The evidence is you haven't just been, if you're lucky, you get lucky once, maybe you get lucky twice, but you've been relentlessly successful in all kinds of different industries throughout your career. So it can't be luck, can it? You, you're being modest, like... You can't constantly be successful and constantly be lucky. The luck would run out. Again,
3: it depends on the definition of success, right? And for me, I think when you look at success out here, it's how do I achieve success in terms of uplifting, motivating, taking the whole spirit up and about. And I said this goes back again to the roots where we started from, of India. And that's something which I really identify with the company which I work for because our tagline is RISE. And that word means a lot to me. How do you achieve that in a team where you have two individual drivers looking
0: for their own personal success, and then you have a wider team looking for for team success, and then you're having to please your sponsors, and you're having to work with the media? how How do you think you
3: create an environment to help people rise? I think for us, what we've tried to do differently is, again, we questioned everything on motorsport when it came in, okay, for us, because we've never done motorsport, so... There was nothing called convention. Okay, this is how it's always been done. There was, we didn't, I didn't know that. And when I heard it, that actually that statement irritated me. Okay, that when person people come and tell you, but this is how we always do it. Like, no, question everything. Okay, the five W's. Just go through that, like everything has to be because once you've gone through the five W's, okay, you've 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 to a certain extent drill down to it. Like, so why? Why, what, where, when, who. Okay, so you sort of go, I don't know whichever order it is in, but you go through the five W's, you have drilled it down the problem to the basics. Okay, and then, once you start questioning everything, we sort of looked at it slightly differently, and I think from our side, we realized, okay, we are going to have an organization which is still going to be like a family. And that's how Mahindra Racing has sort of grown, like we know each other, we are like, okay, so as a team also, we need people who are going to work for each other, like, oh yes each driver when the wiser goes down he's for himself but I think the philosophy in our organization is this for the team and that's how we've had some of our drivers like even when they had Nick Heidfeld and etc they really understood what our motivation was and started to work towards helping build a team.
2: I mean it's interesting you mentioned Nick there because I I read uh, some interesting comments on him that even after he'd left the team he spoke about how his relationship with you was still one of trust and um, an understanding So how do you deal with people that don't demonstrate trust and understanding
3: and buy into this family ethos? I don't think we would work for too long together. And we've had, I think, one instance of that. So I think we've been, again, using the word luck over six years of this team. Large part of the team has sort of been together since inception. Uh, The core group at least has been together since inception, and we sort of still believe Uh, And we are quite aligned in the direction you want to go. Nick still helps advisors, for example. So like he started as an opportunity maybe five years ago. And he's now become a part of the Mahindra family. And this all goes back again. We were pretty close to doing a sponsorship deal with Sauber in 2008. So I was a guest of Sauber at the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Nick was a driver. I met up with him and I think I was the last guy standing in the autograph line as a guest or whatever it is. So he had some time to talk to me after it. And he was really, really nice at that point in time. I said, man, this guy is a great guy. And yeah, I think what's five, six years later, when we had an opportunity, I said, I'm going to knock on this guy's door. It's just that first interaction. And like, the way decently he, uh, he sort of, he spent time with me answering my questions, talking to it. So this is the person who I believe will help us grow this team because he has the level of empathy He has a technical understanding. He's a brilliant driver.
0: But it's not an easy thing to create a family culture in a sport as cutthroat and as competitive as motor racing. So coming back to Damien's point about people that aren't right for you, how do you make sure they don't change the culture of your
3: organization? Do you get rid of them quickly? Are you ruthless in that situation? I think I am. Um, Because at the end of the day, for the greater good, see, we have to be, as you said, high performers. At the end of the day, averages can pull you down. And we have to make sure that, yeah, just go by the old analogy that one apple, one rotten apple can sort of uh, dirty the basket. So we have to take care of that and we take care of it pretty early and soon. So th- I think at that point in time, there has to be no compromise because at the end of the day, we are doing something for the greater good. And for that for the greater good, it need, people need to get aligned. They need to believe in where we are getting to. But At the same time, when you talk about belief, I would strongly say that we also encourage disagreement. Do you? Yes. But at the same time, but disagreement, but commit. That's something which I talk to my leadership team all the time. I said, we, guys, let's agree to disagree, whatever it is. But once you make a decision, we're going to commit to it. That's difficult, though, because for me, there'd
0: always be a small voice in the back of my head going, you didn't want to do this. And not wanting failure, but kind of wanting to be yeah, proven yeah. right, I think, would be something that would, that would be on my mind. I'd be like, I told them not to do this. Now it's gone wrong. Ha, I told you so.
3: You don't allow that? But try not to encourage that. And at the same time, see, the group of people which we have who have been together for a reasonable long period of time, okay, none of them are superstars. So now, I think they also believe that, okay, we can come and make something better than what we all sort of came from. And I think that belief still continues within the team. And I think to a large extent, what we try and do at our end, because being a smaller team is throw them at the deep end. No, we're not going to let you drown. Water's going to reach your nose. You're going to flail for some time, but you will not drown. The team is going to jump in to save you. So you've used some really fascinating
2: terms there in term, uh, that you've spoken about. The culture you create is one of a family. You speak about this idea of you look for commitment, and yet you're in a world where you also require technical excellence. So how do you stop people sort of developing their own fiefdoms or this silo mentality where people protect their knowledge rather than have this culture of sharing it and being prepared to open themselves up to disagreement what are the tips that you'd give to anyone listening to this that avoids that
3: i think one area which we try and protect uh from creating fiefdoms and silos is strong communication so we tend to get together and speak on a very regular basis so i would say like what at Mahindra racing we have like a five-person management committee so we tend to meet up if not we speak every day there's at least two formal calls every week, a Monday and a Friday, the start of the week and the end of the week. So we are literally on the same page what everyone is doing. And the minutes of our conversation is circulated to the entire organization. So what the five of us speak is sort of sent out in a document to the entire team later in that morning. So people know what's being discussed. And we try and keep each person with their experience helping the other one around. Then I think we use some of the traditional methods also of rewards also based on team performance, not an individual performance. So the way uh, the compensation rewards and other HR tools are designed is for team performance. Even when I look at drivers, a lot of the bonuses are structured around team performance, not individual performance. And is that different? So is that an example of you challenging the convention of motorsport? So for the first two years, we had like uh, bonuses for drivers on individual performance. And I said, by third year, man, this doesn't make sense. Why am I incentivizing this person for his performance because then we sort of each guys just sort of going out and if it, there is a bit of a financial and it's a pretty substantial financial incentive so it's just not a rounding off number it's a number which makes a difference for them yeah. from a thing and said no let's do it for team performance not lead them but everyone in the team gets where they were the drivers against that initially do you think i think since we had two drivers at that point in time who were mature enough to understand the purpose of what we're trying to do. That was Nick and Felix. They said, man, this makes sense. And they signed off on it immediately. When I did the, my first organization chart, I had the drivers reporting into me. Okay, because I thought, Look, these guys are the stars. By year three, the drivers report into our team manager. So they also realized that they are employees like everyone else for the rest of the year. They're heroes on the day when they have to perform. That's the day when we expect them to do. But the rest of the year, in terms of when they need to come in, when they have to like uh, work on the simulator, do other stuff, they actually now report on the team manager. When they call up to moan to me, I said, sorry, you need to speak to David on this. It's not me. If you just look at a traditional organization chart and look at every level and think, okay, that's one level more junior. They're like, I think third in this chart. So there's two layers above them before they reach out to me. And if you're not happy with the performance of your drivers, who deals with them then? Is that up to the
0: team manager or do you step forwards in that situation?
3: I think uh, we're small enough where each one of us makes a displeasure clear at different points. And um, I think each of us are can get displeased for different reasons. Mm-hmm. As you guys know, I do not control, I don't hold back my emotions. I do share it at that point of time. And there are many times I regret because what you say in anger is a stuff you're going to regret sometime later. But that's something I feel I need to get it off my chest and I make it clear and I sort of take it out. But at the same time, sometimes people I think find it difficult to judge me because... I'll be angry with you on the morning and by the afternoon I'm okay. For me, even like when we talk at home with my wife and I'll say let's disagree on that point and not carry the fight everywhere else. Like okay, this is something we're oh, going to be fighting on yeah. but the rest of it we still like each other on or something like that. So like let's when we have a disagreement in work also it's, please try and try and keep it to that point. Let's remo- like bifurcate, disagree and dislike. I think that's a nutshell for success is if, if you disagree but you don't need to dislike. Sometimes I do realize It might have a much bigger effect on someone else. So, I do need to start controlling my emotions. But then again, we go back to our tagline, which is passioneering. Passioneering comes from the word passion. Passion is an emotion, it's an unstable emotion.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. So
0: that's the drivers. What about the team as a whole? When it's a bad race weekend, what's your processes? for debriefing and working out what went wrong
3: i think Do you when the blame culture i don't think we have a blame culture because at the end of the day we still feel we are learning we're still improving we're doing well so we basically try and break it down to go back and look at the fundamentals maybe if i if i'm in a raw emotion i tend to step away from the the briefing I know I'm not going to be contributing anything useful at that point of time. It's just going to be raw anger. Now that's, in,
0: that's interesting because we spoke with Johnny Wilkinson, the, the Rugby World Cup winner, and he said, ask yourself in life, not does this make me happy or unhappy, ask yourself, is this helpful or unhelpful? And you've obviously realized that it might make you feel better to shout at people, but maybe it's not helpful. It's just noise.
3: Yes, and I think at some point in time, as you rightly say, we confuse noise with action yeah. and uh, stuff like that. And I'm... I'm I'm trust you, I'll, I'll stand up. I raise my hands. I've done a lot of noise, and I don't think I'm. That's something which I'm going to change because that's that's who I am. Yeah. And that's what I believe. in. So, I if
0: you removed the negative emotion, you would be removing the positive emotion as well. Because I watch the Formula E coverage, and I see you in the back of the garage. You respond to every moment. You're delighted when things go well. You look devastated when things go badly. But it's important for you, is it, to keep that emotional connection to what you're doing?
3: Yes, I think that's what gets you out of the bed in the morning, right? If it's like, if my heartbeat was like the tolerance was just like two beats up or down, for me that's close to flat. Yeah, it has to have its peaks and spikes and thing. And that's where I believe. And I think that's something which I also encourage folks to come and okay, mm-hmm. share your emotion, do what you have to do. But at the end of the day, learn the, the big picture what we are trying to get to. But what techniques have you learned that allow you to
2: experience the emotion and then gain? perspective quickly because i can imagine that your team needs you to still be far sighted and not and not make uh decisions in haste because you're feeling that emotion so how have you learned to flush it and then get back into that logical engineering technical
3: mindset that served you so well i think now with having my core team with me for the last couple of years they know it's dilbag being dilbag okay this part of it can be ignored Okay, that he's like having a thing moment, he needs to vent it out, He's 10 minutes later, he's going to be okay. So I think to a certain extent, they've also reached a stage where um, we'll just sort of let me sort of vent her up, because, you know, it's going it's just going to get easier after that. So I think people also, you tend to get to know the other person, okay, which, when it's a bad moment, when it needs to be stepping in. It's not that we've just sort of come together yeah. right now, it's been built over a period of time. So I think you just recognize the other person where his strengths are, where his weaknesses are, and then you work around that.
2: I've heard about this with um, with some teams where they've had people that, that sometimes in meetings, they just let you speak and the rule is that nobody else can respond. You just get to speak and you can be emotional, you can be angry, you can respond in any way you like, but the rule is that nobody's allowed to interrupt you, but equally nobody's allowed to take what you say personally. And then when you've exhausted yourself, they then say, now what do you want us to do differently with this? Is that the kind of approach that you're describing your team take with you? They just give you 10 minutes. And then you come back and they know that you, they'll get something they can
3: action. See, a lot of time under this heat of emotion, it's not me who needs to make a decision. I'm trying to uh, get control of the situation. I obviously am not. That's why my emotion is somewhere there because I'm not in control at that point of time. If there's something which is really out of control, means you're not prepared for it. And I think preparation is where we spend a lot of time. Now that's something that I do want to talk about because in...
0: My line of work as a TV presenter, if someone doesn't do their job right, we might end up with a bad interview or a bad camera shot, or if the worst happens, we fall off the air. In your team, if someone doesn't do their job right, it can cost the life of a driver, a team member, someone in the crowd that's watching. So what processes do you have in place to keep your people fully plugged into the fact that you are working in a life and death environment? There can be no resting on laurels. There can be no approach that is anything other than 100%. I mean, we talk about it a lot with motorsport, that marginal gains approach to constantly improving.
3: I think that again comes back to a work ethic that people need to realize that there's their responsibilities. And I think that's a part also where people take pride and again, go back to where we started, do it right the first time around. Mm. So I think that message keeps going down. And I think this is something which I repeat literally every race weekend saying that guys, as every one of us, can we remove one mistake this weekend? We have twenty people in the garage. If twenty of us can remove one mistake, we remove twenty mistakes today. So that's the constant phrase. I think on the uh, Saturday morning, I go up and say in the like a small little huddle which we have, I say, let's all try and remove one mistake today.
0: You address the team before every race weekend.
3: Yes, we do have a small huddle on Saturday mornings. Yeah, five minutes.
0: And how much of that is practical
3: thoughts about the weekend, and how much of that is your emotion? I think it's more of it's literally by now I'm sure people roll their eyes and say oh man I've heard this 46 times already <laughs> okay so it's basically like uh, I think it's yeah today's an opportunity we need to go do this we need to perform this is what we're trying to do why we are here or why do we sacrifice so many days of our, of our lives this is for this moment so now let's rise for the moment and I think that's what we try to do just build up the emotion because we know by the time see in motorsport etc the moment you come to the race you're actually at your physical tiredness because you've you've been building it up for that period of time and it's been a long day already. The race at four o'clock, you've started at maybe five in the morning or something like that, preparing the cars, getting stuff done, your practice, if you've had a shunt, rebuilding it. So how do we keep the people up That saying, okay, now is the moment? Yep. So just build them back up, saying, okay, guys, we have one hour, let's do our best.
2: I read that one of... Your comments about your role was that your job is to deliver three three factors for your team. Technical skills, financial support, and then the human element of it. In your world, what would you say is the most important of those three?
3: Well, uh, there's no one. For me, I can take two out of the three. I definitely would say it's human. Obviously, the first, there's without any doubt, and there's financial. I think, let's be clear, motorsport, there's a direct correlation between financial resource and results. So, so does it, that frustrate you though? Not exactly, because I think the tolerance level in the sport we are in, it doesn't. It's not yet making too much of a difference. This championship has been reasonably clever to curb certain areas where costs could have gone out of control, and to a certain extent, I think I would like like to say. I was one of the people who w- was able to contribute towards that because I was the chairman of the Formula e teams association in season two. I think the biggest contribution which I could have done at that point of time, which it did is get everyone to sign up for a common chassis and a common battery over three generations. Yeah. So at that point of time I itself, I realized, okay, wearing the Mahindra hat and this could go way above where we guys will be able to sustain ourselves. So as long as the competition can be a thing with our innovation, with our agility, we still will be can be successful. And that's, I think, has been proven. So we've seen smaller teams in this championship doing really well. We've seen customer teams in motorsport. It's very rare where the customer beats the factory team. We've seen that happening in our championship. And I think so. that's the the good part of it is that when you go into a race weekend, it literally is a championship. And it's not a cliche that all of us go on the weekend believing that we can win. So are you an optimist? Do you sit here now ahead of
0: a new Formula One season and believe that you can win the championship? Yes, sir.
3: I do believe it. Otherwise, I won't be here.
0: So what have you as a family reflected on from last season to do better, to make sure that this year you you do win the championship?
3: See, there's no silver bullets left in motorsport now. Okay, the incremental gains are over. First couple of years, you could see uh, the silver bullets coming in. So it's just going back to every process, every procedure, how do we incrementally do it better? There are small areas which you've tried to invest in the recent past and something which honestly i did not take seriously earlier was mental health i always d- was a bit dismissive of it i thought it was a weakness and people talked about mental health and now we see okay uh, in terms of when i say just sports psychology we send our drivers down and each of them are experienced drivers but i mandated us, you guys you are going to be spending some time with a sports psychologist it makes a difference yeah. and those little
0: bits what of- changed your mind on that because going back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it wasn't an uncommon opinion to think that mental health problems were a weakness. What changed What changed that opinion for you?
3: I think it was a selfish reason. When you could see that, okay, that could give me that one small little gain in performance when people have spoken about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And this is again something which Nick came to me. Nick said, okay, I was having a bad time in some part of his career. And I went and spoke to Dr. Dieter Hackforth in Munich. I've spent some time with him. And says, that made a change. And And he says, I would encourage you to try it. So I think it was, again, trying to look for that every little bit as a difference. All of us have a comfort zone, and I think we have to get out of it to start performing. And because the moment you sit in your comfort zone, you're not progressing. Well,
2: that to me is an interesting question about you, because looking at the pattern of your career, that you have broken out of industries and gone into new worlds, and then given your experience in racing, what's next for you?
3: I don't know. I really don't know and I've never planned my career forward that's why it sort of zigzags the way it goes and I think that's why I like it the philosophy for me has been maximized today
0: I've loved sitting and having this conversation with you I think it's been so interesting I think you've you've been so eloquent and I've picked up loads of interesting insights there's a, there's a couple of things that I just want to uh, mention um you we spoke at the beginning about how your parents had a very strict idea of how education is the most important thing for you and you have shown that there are there is another path for you so how are you with your own children how obsessed are you about their education or are you spending your time encouraging them to just follow a path of emotion which i get the sense is what you've done
3: i'm going to tell you something which i don't think i've told anyone yet okay i don't know what i'm going to do next but i would love to become a teacher really okay a middle school teacher that's something which is a passion for me and which I would love to do at some point in time in my life. Going back to it, for me, I think education is broken. Because when we, when I, when I say we, means at my age and people think, when we went to learn, we went to learn answers. We memorized answers. I think education needs to change to ask questions. Because yeah. answers are available today it's experiences which can help you ask better questions. Mm. And I keep telling my daughter, please ask better questions. Like like, learn to to ask questions. The answer's available. With all the tools out there, your internets, your Googles, and stuff like that, you have all the answers out there in the world. Learn how to ask the question. What would have been a better question we could have asked you then? I have no idea, I have no idea.
0: Brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. you, you mentioned that in your head you're doing this for India. Um, I think it's very brave because you could be doing it for India, but you could do be doing it quietly in a laboratory somewhere away from the glare of the public. Yet you very publicly have a team called Mahindra, named after a huge Indian company, and you're there on the television every week fronting up um, and doing it for India. So um, congratulations for being brave enough to do it.
3: I don't know if it's brave or foolish, but there's a fine line out there. But in the end, I think it's been a great journey. In the end, and I really need to thank uh, the fans in India, uh, people who supported us, like believed in us, sent constant messages of support. It's just amazing.
2: So we now do a quick fire round where we just ask you some uh, questions. And the first one is: What are the three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you
3: must buy into? Integrity, I think that's for me the most important thing is integrity The second thing is going back to my saying do the do it right the first time around That's really important for me. The third bit is I think just honesty I think those are the three non-negotiable bits for me.
0: What advice would you give a teenage dill bag just starting
3: out? Don't take yourself so seriously. I think sometimes with education we take it so seriously And I hope my daughter's not listening to me because that's something different to say at (laughs) her. But I think it's like, no, take the experience rather than the content.
2: How important is legacy to you?
3: Legacy is very important to me. I think we don't give due respect to legacy in in our lives. And I think, especially in today's world, and now I'm going to be sounding like the 50-year-old that I am, is that our attention spans are so short and it is for this instant gratification that we want something we forget legacy we forget how the like whatever has happened the last has helped us get to where we are at this point in time it could be in sport etc and we we cannot forget it and we should not forget it
0: and the final question what is your one golden rule to living a high performance life
3: for me is my philosophy is maximized today
0: maximized today brilliant we will allow you to leave and go and maximize the rest of your day thank you so much for taking the time i mean i've picked out lots of little things from that i love your bit about learn to ask questions don't just learn answers and i think i um, take the experience from life not just the content i think that is a, a key thanks you
3: guys for, for having me i well, really appreciate it and i'm looking forward to this today is going to be an exciting day because i'm going to be driving a formula e car later this afternoon Okay, and How I'm going to thoroughly embarrass myself. <laughs> oh, no problem. Let's go do it. <laughs> good oh, luck. luck. Thanks, guys. And good luck for Thank the season good. ahead.
0: Damien. Jake. What a humble man. Only Yeah, I loved him. I love the bit about education is broken. Spend your life learning to ask questions, not learning answers. I think that is turning education on its head. And he's probably absolutely right, isn't he? Yeah, definitely.
2: I think it fitted with his uh, philosophy of question everything, you know, he said that the most dangerous words in the English language are, we've always done it that way. And I think when you come at it with the idea of asking questions and knowing what you don't know and being comfortable with that, I think that becomes a superpower in its own right because it allows you to ask difficult questions or challenge convention, which is what he's done throughout his whole career. I remember
0: when I first was offered the job as uh, the Formula One presenter for the BBC and I went into a meeting and it was in the boardroom at the BBC which was in the old television centre building and I remember I was got stuck in traffic and I was late which was massively embarrassing because it was the first meeting when we all got together and there was like Martin Brundle you know multiple award winning broadcaster and there was David Coulthard multiple Formula One winner, Eddie Jordan multiple millionaire my big boss of the bbc program and the editor and loads of other people and i hardly spoke because i was so aware that in that company i hardly knew anything and i was reminded as i walked in about that old phrase of better to be considered an idiot than open your mouth and have it confirmed yeah i remember being late and going and opening the door to the room and the program editor was a good friend of my agent at the time and a few days later he rang my agent and said i'm worried about jake whether he's right for the formula one job because he didn't speak in the meeting only now do i think that was such a smart move to just sit there and be quiet a bit like he spoke about today because i was i i didn't without really realizing it i think i knew what i didn't
2: know and i didn't know bloody loads yeah everything this comes back to we've spoken about this a number of times on the podcast is the dunning kruger law the the dunning kruger law is what trips so many people up that we can watch our politicians on television and we say oh you know i could do a better job than that and yet the dunning kruger law says we don't know what we don't know we don't know the complexity the intricacies the difficulties of what they're trying to balance so we can we're at peak ignorance at the start of it whereas once we exist in that and You don't
0: realise you're ignorant because you don't realise, you don't know.
2: Yeah, exactly. The example I often use to illustrate it is if you think of it, the early stages of talent shows on TV where the bit we all love is when the idiots show up and the, and somebody says, I'm going to sing like uh, Mariah Carey and it sounds like a cat being strangled. Yeah. That's funny because they don't know how bad they are but equally they don't realise just how far away from Mariah Carey they are. And I think what Dilbag gave us there is that humility to go into any situation and just be comfortable not knowing but then asking questions to, to learn and accelerate the process quickly
0: and I think also he knows he's flawed when it comes to emotion because he has to take himself away like almost the big moment where you need your leaders is when something goes wrong and from talking to him that's almost the very moment he steps away because he knows that he has to take a breath and the team kind of understand that. I, I I struggle
2: with whether being that emotional is a good or a bad thing yeah again I'd go back and I'd ask what we should now call the Johnny Wilkinson question of is it helpful or unhelpful and I think what he's recognizing is that he almost needs to do it so it's helpful for him but it's not helpful for his team so he has a plan in place that they don't rely on him in those moments interesting
0: stuff thanks for your time oh brilliant thank you Well, Damien, it was great to sit down and have that conversation with Dilbag. And I think people are going to really get a lot from that conversation because he's someone who, he's a bit of a chameleon in many ways. He kind of has moved around, done all kinds of different things, but done all of them with passion at the very centre of it. And often we speak to people when they ask us about how they can have more happiness, how they can feel fulfilment, how they can be successful. Finding something you're passionate about seems to be a pretty good response,
2: doesn't it? Definitely. I think um, what Dilbag was a great example of was the power of humility. You know, humility, if we think of it in three stages, Jake, the first stage is we have to get beyond peak idiot stage. We have to know what we don't know and get beyond that. And we enter that valley of humility where we're curious, we ask questions, we try and explore the craft and how it works before we arrive at the third stage, which is the hill of knowledge. And I think Dilbag is somebody that, has entered the valley of humility in so many industries, whether this is in uh, computers, whether it's now in Formula E. He's a guy that comes at, uh, at everything by seeking understanding, asking questions, being open. And I think he was a perfect example of that even when we sat down with him. So I regarded it as a real treat.
0: I loved it and I hope you do at home as well we would love actually to know what you think of it so um, while you're listening to this please feel free to hop onto wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the pod just let us know what you thought of the conversation that we had with Dillbag. I thought he was a really inspiring guy thanks to you for downloading, supporting and listening check us out at High Performance on Instagram and we'll see you very soon for another episode of the High Performance Podcast <laughs>